Coming up this week, we preview Cricket World Cup League 2 action, dip our toes into rankings and qualification, women's T20 World Cup qualifying, and news around the world, including a six-hitting flurry by Jasker and Malhotra. But first, a shout-out to our patron supporters who help us do what we do. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket. Enjoy yet another EC pod. Hello and welcome again into the Emerging Cricket Podcast this week online and on Sport FM in Perth. Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner join me, Daniel Beswick, once again. Boys, how are we? It's another busy week of Emerging Cricket. First to you, Tim, uh, once again returning for the show. How are you? Um, semi-regular co-hosts, I feel like, <laughs> now leaving you guys stranded. It's uh, been a busy time, but, you know, that's that's work stuff. But, uh, no, it's been good. Got to play my first game on the hybrid pitch in Vanuatu on Saturday and as one could imagine anyone that tweaks it um, as compared to bowling on turf wicket versus synthetic it was good strange pulling spikes back on again hadn't worn them since I left Hong Kong in geez that was 2019 so good to get out there and even better to have our newly announced vice captain in my pocket getting him out on the third ball I bowled so um, (laughs) no it was good good win for the bush pigs coming against the up against Tafea this Saturday uh, on the same field, so good to get out there again. But uh, overall, pretty tired, but these things happen. <laughs> How about you, Daniel? It always sounds like there's a lot going on in Vanuatu, and you're, I think, still finding your feet in that CEO role. We're waiting for this this magical time in Tim's life when he can jump on and do all the emerging cricket stuff all the time, and it always just seems to be something happening just about every day. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I wasn't insinuating anything, but no, it's good to have you on Talking Emerging Cricket because this is where we like to have you. Nick Skinner, Nick? How are you over there? Uh, I think we've entered the 11th week of New South Wales lockdown. I'm slowly going crazy. Uh, What about you? Well, I managed to get my vaccine on the weekend, so that was exciting. Yes. One down, one to go. Uh, The downside, though, is because I was just in a mad rush to book it through the New South Wales website. The only spot available is in, um, I think it's in Liverpool or something, and it's uh, which is miles away and one of the one of the key hotspots. So, going to try and reschedule that one, but uh, we'll see how we go. So can you just point out to the listeners out there, not from Sydney, where you live, um, it's distance north of Sydney and where Liverpool is then located in relation to Sydney. We'll we'll use the CBD. It's probably uh, about equidistant between Gosford and the CBD and the CBD and Liverpool. And Gosford and the CBD is a good 80 kilometres, so that'll be a fun drive. (laughs) Narrator, it was not a fun drive. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're... (laughs) We're five-sixths we're five into being fully vaccinated here at the Emerge Cricket Podcast, which is good to hear. Uh, hopefully some international travel around the corner and some international cricket. Well, if we're not at full pace, we're getting very close to it now. We've got Cricket World Cup League 2 coming up on the 13th held in Oman, Oman, Nepal and USA. It's actually a repeat of the last Cricket World Cup League 2 series we had, albeit that series being in Nepal. And we'll get into that in a moment, but there has been some one-day international cricket in the lead-up to that. PNG also over there. We know they're travelling there for, for 
the T20 World Cup, also playing some one-day matches just to kind of uh, shake the rust uh, as a lot of these associate teams have found at the moment. And with the bat, we've seen some pretty typical performances of both PNG and Nepal. Nepal coming back and, and winning a game against PNG by, I think it was three wickets, where once again, Nepal's batting frailties showed. And in the absence of Paris Kadka, which is... Well, it's a monumental loss. It's as big a loss as we'll see in in emerging cricket circles. Let's have a quick chat about the Cricket World Cup League 2 Series coming up with the form that we've got coming into it, with the USA winning both of their matches. But Nick, to start with you, it's an intriguing series. We know how dominant Nepal were in Nepal, but in different conditions with Paris Kadka not there anymore. And it looks as if USA have strengthened somewhat in terms of their reassessment of where they are at the moment. It's got the makings of a very intriguing series. Yeah, and not to mention Oman, who've just been playing a warm-up series against the Mumbai Ranji side. So that that was quite interesting as well. As you say, the conditions in Oman, not as spin-friendly, I would imagine. So perhaps Sandeep Lamachane, a tad less effective than, than he was in Nepal when uh, when, when he bowled out the US for 30-odd. Um but uh, yeah, interesting, good signs from the US in that match against PNG where Stephen Taylor came through and hit 80 off, I think, about 50 balls. Uh, so he's hitting some good form, which, you know, he, he was struggling for a number of years, actually. So hopefully he can um, turn a corner for the US there. Uh, PNG, I think this was a, a good move from PNG, you know, flying in to get some match practice ahead of their League 2 match, um, which, you know, all these series have been crammed in. Uh, the next one's with uh, Oman, Scotland, and, and of course, PNG. So uh, I think they've got a bit to work on ahead of that, uh, you know, pretty typical story for PNG with a couple of collapses and Asad Vala, <laughs> basically the, the only batsman carrying them. Uh, Nepal, again, as you say, um, they're batting frailties back to sort of classic Nepal win there. I think they're they none for 40-odd, and then they lost seven for 36 to, to be uh, seven for 82. And then they managed to sort of scrape over the line with some tail-enders. I think Sompal Kami helped get them home. So, yeah, a, a lot of question marks for everyone there, you know. And, and the US, um, as we've seen, they've, they've had a few shuffles around their squad, and, um, you know, none of these teams have played much recently so yeah looking forward to this yeah i'm gonna hold back any judgment of the barramundis you know they've probably had it worse than almost any other cricketing nation out there with various lockdowns and players being stuck in different places and having to ha- get clothing sent to oman that uh, that couldn't be sent to png to make sure that it got there so let's see but you know you did say a, a typical performance from png i think we've talked about that a lot haven't we that sort of a team of 11 well, you know, full squad of 15 all-rounders and um, just hope that they can get some decent match practice and, and match time before ODIs and then into the T20 World Cup. Geez, wasn't it hot that day against USA? It was, it was over 40 degrees, wasn't it? And look, I don't want to ask, you know, where's the money? But I think Oman Academy has lights, don't they? So I would have thought that perhaps a, a twilight game or a night game, and I, don't know, I have a feeling they might be playing some under lights if memory serves. So that's, that'll be an experience as well, considering well, we get to watch that, but it's going to be very late because it's like us looking at the, the TV schedule for uh, the World Cup where it means that, oh, okay, so you're not sleeping that night. <laughs> um, and-
and Scotland coming over as well for that second League Two series, as you said. But uh, Nepal, I was impressed with Rohit and Sampal putting that key partnership eight wickets down to, to get them home. I won't say old Nepal would have lost those wickets because they've won some of those games with not many wickets left, but it was good to see a, a fighting performance from them. USA, I, I think we'd probably expect them to come into this, and I don't want to use the pun hot, I guess I have to, hot coming for, into this weather. But all these players have been playing minor league and let's leave aside the selection conversation as to whether these are the best players that have been playing in the US. I think that's a, you know, you just got to go and listen to Nate Hayes um, on his weekly raps about about that and the selections there. But I guess the thing for USA, all that matters to them is this League 2 series and then they go home. Of course, the US and Nepal, neither in the T20 World Cup. So Oman, Scotland, PNG that we see in Series 2 will then be looking to transition into T20 mode. The question of the weather, yeah, certainly has come up on a couple of occasions and good to have the facilities there to have day-night cricket if you if you need to. I made the change today, boys. I added Dubai time uh-huh. to my uh, face of my phone just to make sure I'm in the right time zone and in the right headspace for everything that's about to unfold in international cricket, not only with this League 2 series, but the next one. And then, as we know, a World Cup coming up and we'll have plenty of content in regards to all of that too. And not only that, on the women's side, we've seen a number of pathway events well already finished in the ICC Europe T20 World Cup qualifier but now to look to Africa boys 11 team bonanza over 11 days (laughs) (laughs) once again we'll get to see this on ICC TV as well Tim's getting keen for it already Uh, as you mentioned Nick in the notes before it's a brutal format just one team going through and you Mm. would think with Ireland probably being the next best ranked out of the teams who don't qualify automatically in inverted commas there's one one spot up for grabs in an area that's become very much very competitive. Um, yeah, <laughs> eleven teams in, split into two groups. Group A, with six teams being the host Botswana, Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, Mozambique, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe. And you know, in that group, you would think Zimbabwe probably the favourites. They've played actually a series of T20Is against Thailand, which they lost two uh, one, but they they looked okay in that. And you would imagine they have too much quality for most of these teams. Um, who, who are sort of more down the lower end of the African tree. I don't know where Kenya is, which is quite interesting because the other group, uh, Group B, being five teams, sort of leads me to think maybe they were originally planned to be there, but they've, I don't know. They, they, Kenya's women's team especially often has trouble traveling because of uh, financial issues, but then you would imagine being an ICC tournament, it, it should be subsidized. But yeah, so Group B, Cameroon, Namibia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and Uganda. In that one, it'll be tough between Namibia and Uganda, but you'd think both of them would make it through to the semifinals. And yeah, out of Namibia, Uganda, and Zimbabwe, I I can't pick it. I think they've all shown a lot of quality in the, the last little while. Interesting to see Cameroon making it through. It's another francophone nation in West Africa with a, an anglophone minority. But you're know, looking at some of the player names, a lot of a lot of French names. So it seems like our friends in Mali are not the only ones in in the former French speaking parts of Africa that are, are taking up cricket. So that's good too. Now I'm looking at the rankings as they sit at the moment. I'm assuming that's what they were when they went as well, with Ireland sitting in tenth and Zimbabwe twelfth. So that tells me, with Ireland not qualifying out of the Euro group that Zimbabwe have to win because if they don't you know they won't they won't go through so yeah it's interesting about Kenya especially after their performance during the Kabuka 
event. So, yeah, it's going to be a cracker. It has a feeling almost like the T20 World Cup qualifier back in 2018 with the sort of crossover semis and whatnot. But, yeah, so really exciting. Good to see that many teams. But, yeah, I don't know. It's disappointing about Kenya. Just when we talked about, you know, we're seeing a resurgence um, with Kenya getting through in Rwanda. But, um, yeah, look, I'm hoping that all these games are going to be broadcast, as Bez said, on ICC TV. I'm, I, I do think the regional qualifiers for the women were included, and I think that will mean that we see Cricket World Cup League 2 and an Africa women's qualifier going on at the same time, which will, you know, it's a veritable feast. Yeah, it's it's great, and uh, just a reminder that people should sign up for the ICC.TV account, which you can watch... The, the matches for free, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, so a little plug there for that one. But yeah, looking forward to seeing it. And it, it should just be a good gauge of where everyone's up to because you know, we've seen a lot of the time that uh, rankings aren't necessarily the most accurate predictor of, of teams. And so seeing them actually play some matches on the field will be um, you know, a, lo- a lot more illuminating, I think. There you go, bringing up that magic word of, of rankings, Nick. And uh, mm-hmm. I know you've got something on your mind, too. It would be remiss of me not to. I, I, I don't know. Uh, look, uh, it really, yes. Vanuatu have, have fortunately fallen foul in the men's rankings without cancellation of the what's to be a Japan-hosted T20 World Cup qualifier for the men. And uh, by the barest of margins, <laughs> unfortunately. And a lot of things happen in life. And, you know, don't go watch the butterfly effect because, you know, it'll, it'll mess with your head. But, you know, the, <laughs> the flapping of a butterfly's wings when both Vanuatu and the Philippines pushed to play a five-over game during the last regional qualifier in a very wet underfoot Amini Park, only to go down in a, in a five-over thrash. There's been the difference between the two teams. And we know how much energy there is behind Philippines cricket. You saw it yourself in 2018 when, when you were there in Desmarinas to, to cover the Group B or Group 2 qualifier. But uh, I've got to say, look, we talk about rankings all the time, but it's very disappointing when games against much higher ranked opposition get sort of averaged out. And especially when teams haven't played against each other a lot. It's, uh, but again... It's one of those things. You sort of look at the relative strength of teams and how little cricket we've had the last couple of years for obvious reasons. Would have been great with money saved on these events to actually see the ICC perhaps think about having larger qualifiers of, of taking more teams through, especially in, in regions like EAP, probably more so on the women's side, actually, where there are five teams all ranked in the top 30 where, um, where only one has gone through, being a PNG ahead of only one place ahead of Samoa then Indonesia only a few few spots back and Vanuatu too but uh, but we will have someone who um, who has some thoughts on the matter on the show next week as well won't we yes Alan Kerr from Japan and the setup over there and I mean Japan have fallen foul of the rankings too I mean it's it's tricky when you have to cancel tournaments and, and trying to find a fair way of, of determining the, the teams to go through but as you say you know <laughs> I saw the Philippines play in Dasmarinas, and and there's a lot of energy, as you said, around uh, the the cricket scene uh, in that town, and and they're doing a lot of good work in terms of development. But as a cricket team, I think that five-over win against Vanuatu is not representative of the the quality of both teams. I I think (laughs) Vanuatu are definitely the much better team on the field, from what I've seen of both sides in a few different tournaments. So, um, yeah, Philippines, I think they're probably going to struggle at the next level. And, um, you mean, hopefully... Um, not not to say I'm hoping that they you know <laughs> that they get humiliated, but hopefully seeing them struggle uh, will will cause perhaps the ICC to rethink the way they go about this, or, or maybe even 
I, I don't. I mean, as we've said before, none of us are mathematicians, but surely there's got to be a, a more effective way of determining rankings because at the moment it just it just doesn't seem fit for purpose. We'd be going over the same ground if we brought this up in the past. I think there's things to consider as to how the how the games are calculated themselves and weightings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it's this problem that we have with rankings in a really siloed regional system to be ranking teams against each other beyond regions so at least at the moment they're going within a region but the lack of consistency in that cricket over a certain time and you know you go back further than two years if I'm correct um the weightings go go down I remember you know when that Hong Kong winning against Bangladesh for example was still in our in our I say our it's like it dies hard doesn't it still in still in Hong Kong's (laughs) rankings and then it sort of dropped off and and they dropped down the table not an easy job but uh, it's definitely something needs to be looked at because it's not the first time it's been brought up at all but um no, it'd be good to, to get Alan on the uh, on the podcast, actually. He's got an interesting story himself, having travelled through Afghanistan. I saw him post some photos from his, his trip there. He played cricket at base camp in Everest and has been in Japan for, geez, quite a while now, longer than five years, and married and got a baby there now. We probably have a screaming baby in the background, so it should be a really good chat. I'm Catherine Bryce, an all-rounder for the Scotland women's cricket team, and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. A couple of news bits before we do chat to Paul Sinclair. First, Romania have taken out the Continental Cup at home, with the Romanians going to 12 matches unbeaten in T20 international cricket. Pavel Florin's side defeated Luxembourg in the final, with Hungary third and Malta finishing in fourth. Thailand's Nataya Buchatam has been nominated for ICC Player of the Month honours after their 2-1 T20i series victory over Zimbabwe. Meanwhile, the national team have travelled to South Africa to take on a South African emerging side. And finally, USA's Jaskaran Malhotra has become the second player in ODI history to hit six sixes in an over alongside Herschel Gibbs in his 173 not out in their victory against PNG. It's the third highest men's ODI score by an associate member player, the highest score in an ODI by a player batting at five, and he was just one six away from most sixes in an ODI innings. That record was set by Owen Morgan at the 2019 Cricket World Cup. That's all the news in the Emerging Game this week. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com. But next, Paul Sinclair. Hello, this is Shafiq Stanikzai, ex-CEO of Afghanistan Cricket Board, a passionate cricketer and a die-hard cricket fan. You are listening to Emerging Cricket Podcast. Well, an issue that's hampering cricket domestically, internationally, and as well as grassroots levels is climate change. And joining us to talk about the issues of climate change and everything that goes with them, Paul Sinclair, Campaign Director at the Australian Conservation Foundation. Thanks for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thank you. Now, to begin, you have quite a personal story and a personal affinity to to cricket and and looking at it, I suppose, from the lens of, of the issues going on at the moment. Even from a grassroots level, cricket plays such an importance on, well, cricket is so important in terms of Australia's identity for many people over the summer. Talk to us about your experiences with cricket. Yeah, look, Carmen, thanks for the chance to have a chat with you today too. Um, So I grew up in northern Victoria in Australia. Um, So I live in Melbourne now and I grew up sort of three or four hours north of Melbourne, uh, close to the Murray River. So it's a farming area, pretty dry sort of country, flat country. 
I played cricket since I was six, seven years old. It was always a part of our summer. Used to spend, you know, hours practicing in the nets, playing on Melthoid and matting with, you know, sheep poo on the ground and mats over the top, all that sort of stuff. It was always a really big part of, you know, being part of a club, being part of a local community, something that was really important, something you could do with your family. I came to Melbourne and was lucky enough to play at University Cricket Club in Premier Cricket, played with some fantastic people there, and then came across to this really strange little club called Yulden Park or Cricket Club, started by a guy called Harry Yulden, who was a very successful bookmaker in the 1920s and 30s. And um, I've sort of been there since the mid-1990s, and I've, I've been president of that club for uh, about 13 years or so, and we're a large, you know, junior and senior club, men and women, boys and girls. And it's one of the things that's kept me sane over the last 13 years or so while I've been working as a, an environmental activist seeking to try and reduce the amount of pollution in the atmosphere and protect nature and the places and, and creatures that, that are so important to Australians. So cricket's been a part of my life really since I've been able to think, think clearly uh, about the world. The other thing, the big thing that happened to me recently, you know, in the last five or six years is how that really brought home to me uh, the importance of cricket is I, I got diagnosed with cancer and during my chemotherapy for that cancer, you know, I was, I was feeling really crap and, you know, like everything you think was true or good was stripped away. And the place where my, my wife would drive me down because my feet wouldn't work properly and I'd, she'd drive me down to Yildon Parkle's home ground and I would stand on the edge of the ground and look across the oval to these 12 eucalypts on the perimeter of the oval and I would just feel calm, right, and I'd feel okay and hopeful. And I thought, far out, what's going on? And I realised that, that that cricket ground was just so much a part of who I was, about what I remembered, about people I love. And also I knew that when I was at that place, right, that people, people cared about me, cared what happened to me. And it was this sense that that was one of the things that helped me get me through that experience. And it was that realisation that cricket is about winning, right? It is about making runs. It is about taking wickets. But the stuff that actually matters and the stuff that lasts are the relationships that are created through the game. And that's what's important about the game. And that's what lasts about the game. It's very much a haven for, for people and a space that, that, people go to on a on a weekend or even an evening either attending or or watching cricket and finding a, a safe space to to enjoy their lives through cricket it's to look at, at at some of the the issues that i suppose the whole world is facing and and looking at some of the stuff that that you've done and, and written about in regards to all of this and just a couple of sort of stats and, and bits of information for people that you've written about the city of Melbourne, which for people outside of Australia isn't particularly hot by Australian standards, but looking as if it's going to turn from nine thirty-five degree plus days to 26 in a year, eight out of the 10 hottest years ever in Australian history have been since 2005. And in a lot of your writing, particularly through The Guardian, you've warned that we could have summer maximums in Melbourne and Sydney of up to 50 degrees. How important is it for you from your Australian Conservation Foundation point of view, but also uh, as a cricket fan, 
how important is it to you to, to really hammer on this point to people in power and in positions of, of change? It must be incredibly frustrating at times to vehemently make the same points and continually be knocked back by people who haven't looked into the facts or, or don't believe in the science. Yeah, well, I'm a, I mean, I was a gritty left-handed opening bat, so I'm used to taking hard knocks and doing it tough. <laughs> but um, So I'm not too too fussed about being ignored most of the time. But look, cricket is under, under threat and it's at risk of being hit out of the park by global warming because for community cricket, the temperatures will become, unless we take action, extreme. So mates of mine who play up in, in country areas already there are multiple more days of where they can't train or they can't play or competitions are called off because it's just too dangerous, the heat in particular. So we know that like heat is a really big issue and a lot of it, um, elite um, cricketers have also been deeply affected by heat. But we also know just over a year ago, so we had cricket games, community games and also you know, big bash league, T20 comp leagues called off because of toxic smoke from bushfires. Now, we know that the warming of, of our earth and our country is making those catastrophic bushfires. They're turbocharging them. Uh, my own, you know, community club, we had to, first time ever, we had to call off cricket training because the air was too dangerous to breathe. So these things are at a temp where Australia has, the temperature has risen by about a degree already. And if we don't stop the amount of pollution we're putting up in the atmosphere, you know, we're heading for three, four, five, six degree temperature rise. So there's no future in that. It doesn't matter how many ice baths you plan for in your heat policy. It doesn't matter. Like there is no adaptation strategy. There is no boxing day test, right, when it's like that. So for my work at the Australian Conservation Foundation, we've, I've also worked with a bunch of scientists who said, okay, let's look at the trajectory about where we're headed with global warming. And what does it mean for the Boxing Day test? And quite simply, it means that in a do-nothing scenario where we, we don't take action to slash our climate pollution this decade, you have to move the Boxing Day test from Boxing Day because it will be too dangerous to play. The same will be the true of the Australian Open. The same will be true of the Tour Down Under, the big cycling race in Australia. So it means it's, it's got some big impacts for cricket and cricketers. Cricket Australia is um, just absent from the field of play on this issue. They're absolutely nowhere on the issue. There's no leadership coming from Cricket Australia on climate change. They've, you know, received sponsorship funds from companies with big investments in coal-fired power stations and gas, which are creating the problem. On the other hand, you know, Pat Cummins, future captain of the Australian Test Cricket team, is really an outstanding leader on this issue. He's been making public, courageous public statements about how sensible it is to, for cricket to be a leader in this area. He's got a good reason for saying that because this other work that the, that the Australian Conservation Foundation have done with the University of New South Wales where we did an assessment looking at, you know, what happened if you could put solar panels on every major cricket ground national, state and community, what would happen? Well, it may surprise your listeners that what will happen is that an absolute ton 
of clean energy will be created. There will be jobs created and a lot of community clubs and national and state bodies will save money on the energy bills that they can then reinvest back into growing the game. So the solutions to the problem, cricket can be a real part of and they need to get off their backside and, and reach out and grab those solutions. We had a great Mick Walsh, who is the treasurer of Maui Cricket Club, we interviewed when we put these reports out and, you know, Mick's not greeny, but he was passionate about the opportunities for our sporting clubs to be part of the solution and to, to be powered by clean energy. And what Maui Cricket Club did was put these, they got a grant from a local government organisation, they put a whole lot of solar panels on, they saved a whole heap of money off their energy bill and then it allowed them to offer free junior membership to their local community. So they got they actually started building the game, which is a fantastic example, I think, of how cricket can be part of the solution. Well, just on that, and I mean, a lot of the people advocating, like yourself, for climate action make the point that a lot of the time climate action is actually good in other ways, as you said, you know, saving on the power bills, free junior memberships, that's just good for cricket anyway. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Pat Cummins as well and the, the cool-down campaign from a number of leading athletes calling for stronger climate action. Mm. Um, I think Ian Chappell and Shane Watson were also involved uh, among cricketers. There's some things going on. Lords, for example, is powered by 100% renewable energy. Yeah. But you know, how much can cricket make a difference in terms of the overall climate uh, footprint, I guess, of the sport. You know, you, you can put some solar panels on your roof, but if the test team's still zooming around the world in international travel, is that something that needs to be cut down? Yeah, look, it's a really good point. And, like, let's be fair income about it, is that the total impact of, of cricket on climate pollution compared to a coal-fired power station or a coal mine that's digging up coal and sending it overseas is, is small. But certainly cricket can look at, um, offsetting its emissions from travel. That's an area where they can look at how they can invest in um, revegetation projects in Australia and around the world that can help offset some of their pollution costs. There are smarter things that they can do in making their facilities run by clean energy and more energy efficient. But one of the most powerful things that cricket can do is use its voice to actually speak up on the issue. Like you and I know that we could be dropped into northern Pakistan the island of St Vincent in the Caribbean, Scotland, any of these places, and we are going to have friends at the drop of a hat because cricket connects us all, okay? It is a really powerful voice. It's a thing that at a community level, at a national level, the world, you know, connects us up. Imagine if we had the governing bodies of all cricket-playing nations coming up and saying before the big UN climate meeting in Glasgow in November, the world needs to slash emissions over this decade if we're going to have any chance of playing the game we love on the planet we love. So I would love to see Cricket Australia coming out and saying, look, we've been quiet, but we are now, we think Australia needs to commit to having slashing its emissions over this decade. And we're going to be working with our sponsors and state and federal governments to create a fund that we will use to help community cricket clubs become 100% powered by clean energy by 2025. There is nothing stopping them doing. We can do it. The technology's there. They can leverage the money. The only thing that's stopping them is, is will, and that's easy to change. Maybe not easy, but it, it's, 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 it, it can change and will change. And I guess looking, as you say, from the ground up, I, I guess, seems to be the, the kind of idea that you're looking at there. Taking cricket back to a more social and local level, do, do you think will the place of sport become more or less important in a, in a world where 
yeah, we'll probably see resources uh, diminishing and it might become more politically difficult to justify having a you know a state-of-the-art cricket facility with water and, and other you know, resources going into that? Well, look, it's a good point, and I think cricket is going to have to adapt on its access. Turf pitches are water-intensive. The pitch that we play on, we're fortunate. We've got a very advanced sort of local government, like our pitches are watered with recycled water that's harvested when it rains the water runs onto the local roads runs into these ponds cleaned by natural filtration processes in a wetland and then it's pumped back up and used on our grounds we're not going to have the luxury of having pristine drinking water used on ovals and turf wickets in the future there's no doubt about that so i think yeah cricket is going to have to change but i i know from my own club and what i see around the world is Clubs are places that people go to feel connected and the things that they do in their, in those clubs empower them, give them the confidence and the, and the networks of people they need to solve other problems out in the world. So the idea that you've got a bunch of affluent, 11 affluent guys with access to all these resources, oh, absolutely, that's crazy. But clubs have to be more inclusive. They have to be open to lots of different sorts of people. They have to see themselves as part of the community. And I think clubs that accept that are going to grow stronger and more relevant to their communities and will be better clubs. It'll be part of the, the change that we need to make. So I'm really hopeful about the future of cricket. I'm a big fan of you know, CLR James, who's a West Indian cricket writer. He always talked about, you know, Shannon, his club, where he said that, you know, if a catastrophe affected the world and cricket was wiped out across the planet, he said that all that was good about the game, all the traditions, all the values would rise up from his club, Shannon, and repopulate the earth. My club's like that. I reckon your club, you, you'll think the same thing. Someone in Bangladesh will think the same thing. Someone in Jamaica will think the same thing. And that's what I, I like about the idea that there's strength in the fact that a lot of the traditions and values of the game are good. They are strong values. They are, are good traditions, particularly when the game is willing to challenge itself, like on racism, for example, there is some really great stuff happening about time. But on climate change, that's going to be another issue where people can stand up and become a leader in our community. And I think cricket's got a really big role to play. You mentioned being an optimist and you've made me feel a little glimmer of hope for the first time in, you know, at least since that um, IPCC report was released last month. Yeah, it was a bit of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I'm just thinking, you know, what what are some of the, I guess, technological solutions that might be coming on the horizon? We've seen Vanuatu use a, a hybrid pitch where they infuse clay with AstroTurf to create something similar to a proper turf pitch, but um, with much less maintenance. Do you think something along those lines? Uh, or, or artificial surfaces which can replicate different conditions because you know if we're seeing more drought and less grass or, or maybe drought resistant grass or you know other ways to maintain facilities in the face of uh, worsening climate conditions yeah look I, I'm no technical expert and that those examples you've given I wasn't aware of and they sound they sound fantastic I, there's a couple of things in there first I know our current coach of our club grew up on St Vincent in the Caribbean and he grew up playing and he's a former test player for the West Indies, he grew up playing uh, in the street with balls made out of melted plastic bags. So the ability of cricket and cricketers to innovate is high and our expectations about what you need to play the game is sometimes a little bit skewed. Like you just need something that you can hit and something to hit and a couple of friends. So I think that maybe our expectations about what a game 
is might have to change depending on what happens to our environment. But I also think there is, a, as your examples with Vanuatu, um, my example about the use of recycled water. In Australia, we, we literally haven't touched the sides of the potential of recycled water to be used regularly on parks and gardens and playing fields of our, of our cities and country towns. I think that's an area in Australia in particular that will see innovation. And I've I'm sure that we'll end up having uh, much more investment into drought tolerant species and different sorts of services upon which we can play more regularly. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to find a way through um, the challenges that we have in the in the short term and in the longer term. I'm sure that there'll be stronger action taken. We know that uh, at the Glasgow meeting in November, we know that most Australians want to see action on climate change. Um, we know, you know, Pat Cummins, Shane Warne, like Shane Warne hasn't been a huge leader on a whole lot of progressive social issues, you know, but <laughs> he's out there batting hard for action on climate change as well. And I think that bodes well. It's not. It's not on the fringe. It's not, you know, the sort of crazy folks who are wanting to see action on climate change. It's a, it's a mainstream issue and it's the major governing bodies of the sport that are the ones lagging behind, not the people of the countries that play the game. Frustration for me, and this transcends cricket, but looking at, at politicians across the world, what's stopping people from going into and, and trying to potentially go so far in the direction of environmental sustainability. Okay, say, for instance, the three of us are just miraculously wrong about all of this, which I don't think we are, but what's the danger of us trying to be as environmentally sustainable as possible and just reaching a level where we find out it, it doesn't work because it looks as if into the future there's only one way this is going, but at the same time there's a lot of political pushback on on a lot of these issues i think um you know if you look at renewable energy like the creation of energy through using you know the sun and wind storing that in battery systems creating a whole lot of UPU distributed systems where you know this amazing technology out there now where if you know us three were were part of a club that i could be trading i could be generating electricity of my house and giving it to you or selling it to you to use you know so I think in the future what's going to happen is like my own club, you know, we've got about 300 players, you know, say half of them live in a household of four people. We're talking big networks of people. And the technology now means that it actually makes a whole lot of economic sense, dollars and cents sense, as well as, you know, if I could buy energy from my local club, would I do it? Yeah, because... I mean, that's 10 less sausages I have to cook that year to make, you know, fundraise, right? <laughs> so that's where the world, the opportunity is going to open up for clubs. Why is change so hard? Because change is hard, right? It's, it's hard for everyone. Like, it's hard for me, hard for you. But it's also true that on climate change that, you know, for a long time, folks with a vested interest in digging up coal or, or extracting gas, they've got a vested commercial interest in still doing that. And so, yeah, they've been fighting pretty hard in the media and in our parliaments to stop the change needing to happen. But those walls are all breaking down. It's like watching a test match, you know, like they've got 300 to win and, you know, the last two batters are in. It's like it's only going to go one way. The issue now is about we need to get a bit of pace, you know. We want Brendan McCallum rather than, you know, Jeff Boycott at the crease. <laughs> now we need someone who's going to get on with it. Um, not going to someone who's going to fart around for 20 years trying to work out because 
we've got to actually slash our emissions over the next decade to really have a chance of keeping global warming sort of around 1.52 degrees. And it, I reckon it's really like we've got no choice, right, because the world beyond that is pretty crap. So who wants to live on on a planet that that's hot where you can't play games as beautiful as cricket? Uh, well, that uh, comes neatly back to the, the UN report. Uh, we saw the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which issued a code red for humanity if we don't get our act together, basically. But I, I wanted to ask you about another report that uh, you and the ACF were involved with. Uh, it was called Hit for Six, and, mm. and it came out a couple of years ago, basically talking about all the ways that cricket is at risk from climate change and some recommendations. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, there's... Um I think that was the British Association for Sustainable Sport with a crew who pulled that together. And they've got some amazing people there. I think the fellow who was the general manager of Lords is now the heads of that um, association up. And Lords is powered by 100% clean energy. It's you know extraordinary. I mean, it hurts me as an Australian to think of the Poms doing so much better <laughs> than us in that regard, but good on them. Especially with solar panels. Come on. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's, I mean, it hurts me. <laughs> but um, hopefully Cricket Australia will catch up soon. So um, that report basically said that, no, when you look across the world, whether it's, you know, drought in South Africa or India, Bangladesh, Australia, or whether it's cyclones, you know, in the Caribbean, the impact of global warming on the sport is going to be really um, huge. I'm not sure if you saw that uh, recently there was the uh, Prime Minister of Granada gave the Sir Frank Worrell lecture. Um, he spoke beautifully about the importance of, of the need for cricket to lead action on climate change because sea level rise in the Caribbean will, will play havoc with, yeah. you know, the nations that people like me have grown up admiring West Indian cricketers, these places that are so sort of magical that I've never been to. Climate change, global, you know, rising sea levels is going to have a huge impact. And as usual, the you know, often the poorest and most vulnerable in our Australia and around the world are the, are the people who are going to be hit the hardest. So if you come back to what's good about cricket, it connects us all. And I've got an interest in making sure that folks in Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Jamaica or St Vincent are doing okay because we need to be able to um, whip their backsides when they're playing in cricket. <laughs> Staying at sort of the big picture macro level, one of the uh, big consequences of climate change will, of course, be migration and, and climate refugees and, and mm. the attendant political challenges that come with that, like Pakistan, for example, where it, in some parts of the country will be literally uninhabitable. Mm. Where do you see that going in terms of people moving from or to cricket-playing nations? Look, I think there, you know, often if something shocking happens, there sometimes are some degree people look for the good side. But I, I think that Look, in the end, cricket is, is just a game and it's um, the impact on people's lives and their health is going to be pretty hard. So I think, I, re I really think that we have to give a really great shot to stopping, you know, the worst scenarios around the impacts of climate change that will lead to mass migrations of people because increasing, you know, desertification of landscapes or, you know, extreme weather that makes places unlivable. I really don't want that world to exist. And I sort of wake up every day thinking um, I'm going to do everything I can to try and stop that world coming to existence. I get my battery really charged when I see someone who in many ways has it all, like Pat Cummins, continually saying 
I love the game, I love playing the game, but I need to do something bigger than myself, which he, you know, he said last week with the, the cool down report. And even like Ian Chappell, Ian Chappell has been fantastic on this issue and I've spoken to him a number of times about the issue and um, it's great to find someone who swears more than I do. Um, <laughs> he's, but, again, he's, it, that's I, I sort of like that continuity, that he's someone who's a, an old-school cricketer and but he cares deeply about our country and the game around the world, as Pat Cummins does, as a whole lot of um, women cricketers do as well, I know. So, yeah, I'm really hopeful we're going to find a way through. And I think sports people and cricketers in particular are going to be part of the leadership that's going to help us do it. And one of the interesting ideas that came out of that Hit for Six report was a recommendation for the ICC to start a climate disaster fund. Now, uh, our, our listeners are all familiar with some of the ICC's internal problems at getting a lot of things done, but would that be the first sport that has done that or are there other sports that are tackling climate change in a similar way? I don't know exactly, but I've got something in the back of my head that says that uh, soccer has already done something, but I might be wrong with that. But I think that that recommendation, I think that's a great idea. So if you think of, you know, Granada, where we're saying that the Prime Minister was talking, did the Sir Frank Worrell lecture, you know, why not support um, the, you know, installation of renewable energy systems on on sporting facilities in places around the world? When, when the power goes down in the middle of a tornado or cyclone, independent energy systems are going to be a great value to the local community, whether they're playing a game or not. So, yeah, I think that is a really interesting approach and something that's really doable you know it could also be something that corporations that were wanting to do the right thing and be seen to be doing the right thing could make contributions to we could have fans from around the world making donations to a fund that the ICC sort of was running to that uh, that supported communities particularly in more disadvantaged areas be part of the solution the other key one one of the other recommendations out of that report was that that cricket um, associations and governing bodies join the United Nations Sports Climate Action Framework. There's a very few of those bodies, cricket bodies, have joined the UN Sports Climate Action Framework. That's another thing that people can practically do. It's a global uh, network of uh, sporting clubs and organisations around the world run by the United Nations to build uh, positive momentum in the lead-up to the United Nations meeting in Glasgow in November. So my club, the Yulden Park Cricket Club, uh, signed up to it and it basically says you're going to do your best to reduce the amount of pollution you create, create renewable energy and be an advocate for climate action. So the thing that's funny is that also I think the New York Yankees, um, the International Olympic Committee are members as well as Yulden Park Cricket Club. Basically everyone knows those three associations the same. Um, but I think now too there's a number of, County cricket clubs from the UK that have, have signed up. But, you know, if you're a Timbuktu cricket club, there's nothing to stop you becoming a member of the United Nations Sports for Climate Action Framework. And you can, you know, you can attend discussions with, with that body. So that's something that you can do. And you, you put that into your, into your computer, it'll come up and you can, you know, start from there. The other thing, just on a sports people are often underestimate the power of, of their story as well, They're, um, particularly with elected representatives of their parliament. And I'd be urging your listeners who are involved in a community club, if you're concerned about the issue, to set up a meeting, go and see your local member of parliament, tell them where you're from and say you're concerned about the issue and want to see them get a, get cracking on. Often it's, it's not paid activists like myself that are most 
persuasive with parliamentarians. It's it's people who are who are living it, who have got a, a story to tell, and you shouldn't hide your story away if you give it if you care about this issue. You need to be raising your voice right now. That's a great call to action because we've got people listening in from everywhere and if it affects us globally and from a global standpoint it's definitely something that the entire world can get behind so i'm sure there are people around listening to this who can put the wheels in motion and to get started on something as as small as that but is something that i'm sure a lot of people can get behind yeah it's it's something that you can use to to ask you know i've asked cricket australia that you know my local club has signed up why haven't you signed up like, for goodness sake, you know, it's, you know, the New York Yankees are not an insignificant sporting body, right? So I think that's something that people around the world should should try and do. Like, I think the, the cool-down movement showed you the power of having voices that people recognise from the sporting arena talking about the issue is really powerful. There was, you know, close to 400 Australian athletes signed and it, it got a huge amount of attention and still is last week and this week. But it is also important for you as a as a local club to to raise your voice and tell your story. And um, I'd be really keen to hear from people if they want to tell their story, uh, if they're in Australia or around the world. If you've got a story to tell about how sport can be part of the solution to climate change, I'd love to hear from you. I reckon that's a pretty good space to to end. But what I will ask you Paul Sinclair as you are a cricket tragic and we are putting you on the spot here so we ask everyone on the Emerging Cricket podcast if there was a law that you could change in cricket what would it be and why? That is a a really good question. (laughs) Um, I think as a left-handed opening bat I don't think you should be able to be caught and slip. (laughs) I think it's not right particularly second slip, <laughs> that left-handed batsman should be able to sneak it to second slip and he just get a life. I think it's fine. Just ban second slip. Just There's just some sort of zone that's kind of drawn with, with a white a white line to say it's a, it's a no-go zone. That's it, exactly. <clears throat> that and obviously, you know, LB was always a real problem as an opening bat. Very irritating. That that red ball swings too much. It's the climactic conditions. I'm sure you could campaigning for change. Well, first of all, Paul Sinclair, so grateful for your personal story and, and its connection to cricket. And we're also so grateful for the work that you're doing with the foundation and everything going with that and, and pushing this thing along. I think for many people around the world, it, it's great to hear that we can all make change just by doing some very, very simple things, not only every day but but to go in and to join you know some of the bigger organizations to to launch some progressive change in this space so once again paul sinclair thank you for joining the emerging cricket podcast thank you great to meet you all